Quick and Nets tonight, third game in a row. So the Rangers obviously sending a message here on Market Call, 1 p.m. on the East Coast, February 7th. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, EY from SoFi in studio. How's everybody doing? Dan, how are you? I'm doing great, Liz. You know, every time I hear guys say, get your money right, all in one app, I just want to say, get the market right. All in one show, especially yeah. on Wednesdays. <laughs> oh, when Liz is, that's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Everyone's okay. a comedian, right? I didn't know we, we had a new tagline. Get no, the well, there you go. Let's get, show. let's do it. Like um, it. Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Okay. So, um, Guy, uh, heck that of a sounded, that, I was not, by the way, that didn't sound sincere. I mean, yeah. that sounded like, doing yeah. Well? Yeah, no, you're, she's fine. She's fine. here. We just had a little sushi. We got to, we got to hang out with, with the team a little bit. We were chit-chatting. She was actually, you know, we have an intern in the office, young Charlie, and I heard you just explaining some things that were simple. asked me a question. Yeah. I, I tried to answer it as briefly you're as I could. You're a great teacher. You're a great teacher. For the first person in the chat, by the way, this is giveaway Wednesday. First person oh, in the is. chat, um, nobody wants a Charlie in the box. You get a hat. Everybody gets a hat. By the way, Dan, I don't know if you have the hats, but... No, we, those we, we, we're, we're getting to tag ends, as they say, on trading desks of some of the market call swag. So to so pay attention in the chat right now, because A.D., that would be Amanda Diaz, is going to be giving away some market call hats. And we're going to get get some new ones. We're going to get some new swag coming pretty soon. So uh, pay attention to that guy. What are we doing here let's say, today? Let's take a look at the rundown, because there is a lot to talk about. The S&P 5000, Mazel Tov. A lot of people called for it. Here we are. Consumer cracks begin to show. We've talked about it, but it's not us talking about it now. There are actually some analytics to back that up. And some of these beaten down stocks, and there are many near some critical support. So there's our rundown. So let's get right into it. And as we, as our wants to do, Dan, let's yeah. start with the S&P 500 chart, because once again, you know, that uptrend yeah. continues to be in place. And, you know, that little reversal that we saw seemingly the other day, I guess, didn't hold a lot of water. So we continue to sort of grind, do the grind higher. Yeah, it, it is amazing, right? When you look at that line. So when you're drawing a trend line, you want to attach it to as many points as possible. Carter Braxton Worth has taught us that. That's one simple takeaway. And look at where it got down to just, you know, a week or so ago after that Fed meeting. It bounced right off of there. I mean, it's just remarkable, Guy, when you think about how much distance is between that and its 200-day uh, moving average. So listen, it's getting unsustainable. But that being said, if you were to turn that into an uptrend channel, Liz, you know, you would see that there's actually more room until it gets um, extended. And, you know, listen, we say this all the time. I mean, markets, stocks, whatever the, the instrument that you're trading or whatever, they're probably going to do the thing that causes the max pain right now. And in some cases, the thing that's easiest to do. And on, on the tape podcast on Monday, I think you referenced this a little bit, you know, a little bit of the chase that goes on and, and this sort of thing. And, and listen, a lot of the data, whether it's macro, whether it's on single stock basis, it's not actually saying run for the hills right now. Right. Well, and I think that's that's really the conundrum that most investors are in. What I talked about on Monday was the feeling of FOMO and how it's yeah. natural to have FOMO. I mean, even even for probably the three of us at times where we've spent, you know, the better part of a year saying, hey, things don't usually work out well when they're set up this way yeah. and it hasn't come to fruition. So now I, I've had a little bit of FOMO from time to time. Like, how did I miss it? I think it's totally natural to have that. Don't underestimate its power, though, right? The buying power that it has, where you've got buying begets more buying just because people are worried about missing it, where there's really no fundamental basis for the buying. Now, to your point, though, about macro data, and I'll talk about this later when I preview my note, it's interesting. 
I'm starting to feel like the macro da- data doesn't matter as much. Wait, you just said data, and I then you said data. data. I know. And I guys, where, said, where, where wait, so what she's saying is the data doesn't matter. I've heard that before too. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> this is I'm a little off the rails here. I'm sorry, Amanda. By the way, it's important for me to point out. Because it's Wednesday, this is where we go a little overtime, and you can oh, yeah. ask your questions. So queue up for those as well. But I always love people that when there's an R at the end of the word, they don't pronounce it. For example, there's an R at the end of dollar, but certain people say dollar, as opposed to a word like China, which there is no R at the end, but somehow they manage to say China. So it's fascinating to me, but that's neither here nor there. As Liz was saying, the data doesn't matter. Please continue. Well, I think people from the Midwest actually have the most flat accent. Where apparently they train news anchors to talk like us. Oh, really? Because it's so much more pleasing yeah. to the ear. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. obvious. Well, it's funny. I, I mean, you I would say this. It's like, I, I think that, you know, um, when you hear somebody with a strong New York accent, right. whether it be Long Island or something like that, it's yeah. kind of even somebody who's lived in New York City guy, as yeah. long as I have since 1996, um, it's not the sort of accent you want to export outside of this for like a national yeah. broadcast. Does that make sense a yeah. little bit? Well, it's something in the water. Yeah. You know? Well, there you go. There you see, she just did it. I know the she water. did. Just All right. did it. So back Anywho, to the data. Back to the yeah. data. I don't think that macro data matters as much as it did last year or even as much as it did in 2022. And that's part of what's going on. So, yes, things are fine. There's been really no reason to feel like they're not fine. The only thing that seems to matter is that the market continues to march higher. And you know what's really interesting about today, too, is we've got a day where yields fell pretty far. Mm -hmm. We've got bigger news on New York Community Bank. It's down Mm -hmm. 63% in the last three or four trading days. That's a big deal. Yet here we are knocking on 5,000's door. Yeah. But, you know, guys said this um, last week. You've actually said this on numerous occasions um, over the last couple of months. While you thought that yields are going to rebound a bit, you, I know you were also in this camp, Liz, that you guys were not expecting a rate cut in March and and, and fewer than than what market participants were expecting. But, Guy, you highlighted the fact that if some of the, the concerns in and around uh, commercial real estate, right, it were to kind of rear their ugly heads, there's going to be a flight to quality in the tenure. And that's what we saw yesterday. You know, so to her point about the data guy, the data has been strong, right? A- across the board. The data does not suggest that the Fed should be cutting, I guess, in March, maybe not in May, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to push that out. But what happens if the economy remains strong, but pockets in the banking sector, and we can go back a year ago where we saw the fifth largest bank or the fifth largest bank that ever went under, you know what I mean? Like, which was SVB went under, um, but it really did not put a big hit on the U.S. economy, right? Like if you think about it that way. But, but so talk to us about yields here, Guy, because what if there is, you know, a, a couple other banks to go? What if there are further credit concerns? Is there a scenario where the 10-year yield could be a flight to quality, but the Fed's not any closer to cutting rates because the economic data is hot? Well, here's, here's a Muppet news flash for you. And I was obviously, last year, this one caught me by surprise, but I won't make the same mistake twice as they say. But when Silicon Valley Bank blew up, you know, I was convinced that that was going to be sort of the light, the ignition to that, you know, that drying tinder heap. And it was going to basically cause the implosion in the market. As it turns out, that was the best thing that happened to the market because obviously liquidity came in. And unless you work at New York Community Bank, have funds there or a stockholder, you're actually in a perverse way 
probably rooting for this thing to get worse because the worse these things get, the more apt the Federal Reserve and or Treasury is to come in and backstop things, which we've learned the hard way, is obviously an incredibly powerful force for the market in a positive way. So the negative things historically actually are turning into positives. And to answer your question, I do think the move in yields is on the back of exactly that. Yeah. So Liz, we were talking before the show. Let's look at the KRE. Let's look at some of these regional banks. Um, and, and, you know, again, I drew a couple lines on that. The yellow one's the 200 day moving average. We're quickly approaching that, that horizontal, you know, breakout from a couple months ago. I think that was back in December. Um, you know, we're almost back towards those level. We broke in from uh, that uptrend that had been in place, right? From those, those lows in, in the fall In the lows in the fall, it really felt like we were on the precipice of something bad, right? If all of those, uh, regional banks were, you know, were in free fall back in, you know, March of last year, we're about to make new lows. What would that mean for the broader financial sector? What does it mean for the U.S. economy and the like? But here we are. And and again, that's just a chart. That's just technicals, right? Um, But based on what you heard from regional banks, what you see, the sort of stresses in the financial markets right now feel pretty much contained. And I think that's the word that we keep hearing from um, a lot of regulators and the like. What, what, what is your sense um, on this sector in general? And does it continue to be a concern? And it's also one that we talked about with you on Monday, you know, this relative underperformance in, in small caps in, mm-hmm. in the Russell 2000, mm-hmm. I think is, a, is somewhat a reflection of some of the things going on here too. Yeah, well, I think the sector itself is still a concern. That's clear. And, and with a move like we've seen in New York Community Bank, Obviously, the market still has the propensity to punish some of those fears. But the real question is whether or not it ends up affecting the rest of the banking system. Number one, I think the difference this time, if we have another, let's call it a mini crisis in regional banks for whatever reason, the difference this time is that the big banks probably don't benefit like they did last time, right? So the cleanup, the big cleanup has already happened. So I don't know that big banks are going to take what what one person's garbage is it's you know it's not their treasure anymore so you might not see that boost but i think that there's a chance and this is probably what bulls would say and this is likely what we'll hear from regulators and probably from the fed just so that nobody stokes any more fear than needs to be there but i think there's a chance that yes things still blow up because we know that there are risks out there the risks have not disappeared but it could end up being just a really accelerated consolidation cycle right what if a bunch of them just get bought by bigger banks or some of the bigger regionals by some of the smaller regionals. And yes, we go through a consolidation phase, but nothing ends up being catastrophic. It doesn't take the system down. I think that's actually a decent possibility. Let me let me add on to that then, because I agree with what Elizabeth just said, but let's just play it out a little bit. I, I, I do believe that there's more to come. And if you think about our economy, our economy is driven by medium and small businesses that employ, I think, 65%, if not more of the workforce in the United States economy. Our economy is driven by people having jobs and buying things. People buy things on credit. People use, in large part, these mid-sized and small community banks to access that credit. If these banks go away, their access, by definition, to credit is going to be diminished or is going to cost more vis-a-vis some of these larger banks, which I think creates a slowdown. So as much as these regional banks could be you know, basically asymptomatic, Basically, you know, in their own silo and, you know, there's not a a broader risk to the system. I think the risk to the system is exactly that, the credit aspect of this that's going to be harder to access and more expensive to get. 
Yeah. And this is totally, I think that obviously guy, I think you put that together really succinctly. And, and, and again, you know, these were sorts of concerns that a lot of rational folks and maybe just people like you and me who have a little PTSD from the financial crisis in 08, 09, 2010. And don't forget, I mean, that was like a rolling crisis that went on for years, despite the fact that the stock market bottomed right in April of 2009 or so. Um, you know, it was really there was a lot of stress in the system for a long time. And that's why we had QE1, QE2, QE3, ZERP for six years. I mean, like, like, think about that. Right. And guy, you've you've gone on, you know, on many occasions on CNBC see and articulate, I think, again, in, in, you know, in a succinct way that is not one that you hear too frequently on TV, the unintended consequences of that behavior for so many years, we are still dealing with it now. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's your point. You use the word perverse before, you know what I mean? The perverse, you know, like would, would be to wish for the worse it gets, the more likely you are to be backstopped. You know what I mean? And so what does that mean as it relates to moral hazard? And I just want to make one point because a friend of mine pinged me on this last week. And, you know, in, in, in while J.P. Morgan was clearly Liz, the beneficiary of, you know, uh, of this, the regional banking crisis last year, they, they again, as they have done over the last 15 years, they just things get put in their arms and they end up benefiting a great deal. Bank America was like the ugly redheaded stepchild. I mean, like they got dragged. Right. Guy, they dragged for the decisions that they made on, on the treasuries that they bought when the yields were as low as they've ever been and and the and and really the risk that that caused on their balance sheet as rates started going higher and and a few of my friends hit me on this and I didn't see this that Brian Moynihan um his pay in 2023 was 29 million dollars it was down 3% from 2022 in 2022 Bank of America stock traded 50 dollars okay when the year ended last year the stock was 30 dollars mm -hmm. okay it remains so guy talk to me and again this is you know like there's a board there there's a compensation committee there um and what planet does that guy deserve to make 30 million dollars based on multiple years of just really poor decision making whether he was doing himself obviously as a ceo but he's got folks that he pays tens of millions of dollars underneath them to make these decisions at what down three percent guy you think that that's suitable well, planet Earth, obviously, is the answer to that question. And it's more specifically the United States where, you know, we're no longer in this meritocracy. I mean, I, I said this, I'll say it again. This is a country where seemingly people fail up. And that's a longer conversation for another time. But, you know, when 10-year yields were at their zenith of about 5% or so, Bank of America had a hold to maturity loss on their balance sheet of roughly $115 billion. Now, obviously, that's gone down considerably as rates have gone down. But just think about that for a second. Now, people will say that doesn't matter. It's hold the maturity. Yeah, I, I get it. And there's not going to be a run necessarily on Bank of America. I, I get that as well. A whole different depositor base than Silicon Valley Bank. But think about along those lines, you know, what is it not allowed them to do, right? There's also that, you know, you're missing out on a lot of opportunities when you're basically stuck in a bad position. And I think that's what they find themselves in. And I think it's why the stock is traded as poorly as it has. And it's not, again, to cast aspersions of Brian Moynihan. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. It's a much different bank, which a much different customer base. I think they have looked at the world through a much different lens. And maybe they're right. I mean, what the, what the hell do I know? But I'll say this. I mean, that bank got really lucky that rates came down as hard as they did. We'll see how it plays out. No doubt. And Liz, on the other side of this, it was kind of flashing on my fact set screen earlier today. I was looking at the Carlisle Group up eight and a half percent, making a new all-time high. 
KKR up a couple percent. This is a stock that's up 60% in the last year. Blackstone's up 30%. Apollo's up 43%. This is over the last 12 months or so. And look at these stocks. And, and, and one of the reasons that's, that this group guy and, and Liz is really interesting to me is that, you know, a Blackstone is obviously the laggard over the last year. One of the reasons might be, well, uh, Carlisle's catching up here a little bit too, um, that exposure to commercial real estate. So like a lot of the focus, uh, again, on that regional right. banking crisis yep. was what does it mean for that? The news in and around commercial real estate does not get better. Um, right. So it's interesting that, um, that like some of these these are just blowing out while Blackstone is not back to its all-time highs. Thoughts here, because it seems like investors are willing to go out the risk curve here versus, mm-hmm. let's say, the banks, the, the, the money centers that look more like utilities right now. Um, okay, so a couple of things. The First of all, the commercial real estate conversation, I don't mean to dismiss it. It definitely is a risk, but it's a risk that we've known about for a while. It's not going to surprise anybody if something happens in commercial real estate that takes a couple companies down. It's going to be like, well, we knew that was there, yada, 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 right? The the private equity piece, and, and I think actually on a panel at the iConnections conference, I, I want to say it was Vinny who made this joke, mm-hmm. something like, well, if you don't like the way the public market is pricing it, just do it privately and you don't yeah. market, right? Yeah. There is some of that going on, I think, just because the money wants somewhere to go, right? And if the public market is so susceptible, if public market financial stocks are so susceptible to where rates are going on a daily basis, right? On a daily basis, things that are completely outside their control or whatever the macro read is that day or whatever the Fed says that day, then you can shield yourself in theory, Mm -hmm. in some financial stocks that aren't necessarily that directly related to that volatility. So I would guess that that's what some of this is. And then obviously there's the idea that, all right, if we've made enough money in some other stocks, maybe there's not as much upside. You're supposed to have more upside in private equity. If we're turning a blind eye to risk and we're taking too much risk and looking for upside, then maybe private equity gets more attractive there too. Guy, do you see it as that way? Is that like this is kind of a late market stage, you know, kind of run for for things that have lots of leverage? And, I, th- I think and, that's I think that's exactly right. And I also think that you know these individually, but collectively, these are names that sort of can fill that void as some of these again small, mid sized regional banks go by the wayside. Who steps in? You know, who's going to swoop in to sort of fill that gap? And a lot of times, it's companies like this. So, as Molly Hatchett said so famously. One man's pleasure is another man's pain. One man's loss is another man's gain. That's, of course, off the Flirting with Disaster album. Back to you, Dan. Yeah, that was Obviously. that was epic. Um, yeah. Just throw up a, a Carlisle chart right here because, again, this is a new all-time high. And to your point, Guy, that you just made about you know some of these different financial institutions that have benefited from the, the, the you know, precipitous drop in yields from that 5% level. I mean, this throw this in here. Um, but... Again, the Blackstone is interesting to me because we spent so much time in 2022 talking about their exposure in B REIT. And because that was a listed REIT, there was a way to maybe draw a line back to Blackstone and look at that underperformance. So um, to me, all interesting stuff. What are we trying to do here? We're just kind of kind of pick out some things that, that go into our market mosaic as we're thinking about things on a daily basis. All right, Liz, you were thinking about a few things. We get a preview on the Wednesday yeah. market call yeah. of the note that drops on the SoFi Investing blog every Thursday morning, and you're going to preview it for us on Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. But you were looking at some intraday price action in and around some big, what used to be maybe big market moving macro events. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Well, so first of all, 
a public service announcement. My Twitter account got hacked. What? So if you try, no way. You At Liz Young Strat? me. It's out there because we're holding on to the name, but um, it's still hacked. So what I may happened? or may not be able to post this on Anything, my Twitter account tomorrow. Wait, wait. Were there like some somebody some, took some, over some my handle? They changed the handle. No they yeah, I can't log into it anymore. Whoa. So our social media team is on it. We're trying to get it back and Fine. figure it out. But if I can't post this on Twitter tomorrow, you have to find it yourselves. On we'll, the we'll, we'll we'll do it. We'll post it here. How's so that? here's the thing. This I started to think about this because there's been so much chatter about what Jerome Powell has said in the last week or so on 60 Minutes in the presser about. Okay, we completely took a March cut off the table. And yes, the market sold off a little bit, but it really doesn't seem to care that much. Mm -hmm. So then I started to think, well, then do we not care anymore? We were so obsessed with what the Fed said for so long. Do we not care as much anymore? And what do we care about? Does it matter what happens with inflation? Does it matter what happens with jobs? So we did a little bit of work on that. And I got to tell you, Guy, I don't know if you watched the Grammys this weekend, but it was a good show. I did this whole column themed after uh -oh. the Grammys. Uh -oh. So, yeah. You, well, so before you, Chapman, get, before you get into it, I heard the Tracy Chapman thing was great. I mean, yeah. obviously, I was sort of born in an era where Joni Mitchell was sort of, her, her stature was rising. But the lip sync of that whole Joni Mitchell thing was the, was the atrocity of 2024. Anyway, back to you. Well, okay. So the title of this piece was from Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, a lyric play on words. There's a lyric that says starting from zero, got nothing to lose. I change it to starting from hero, got nothing to lose. The hero being Jerome Powell in this case. But here's the thing. What we found out was then another lyric play here. Jobs can love me better than inflation can. That's a Miley Cyrus play. He knows, guy knows attention. that, by the way. She won her first Grammy for flowers. So what, here's what we figured out. We figured out if you can put, put up the chart about CPI and jobs. In 2022, the volatility that was induced, this is the blue bars for CPI on the left-hand side, the volatility that was induced in the S&P by CPI prints, these are only on the day that CPI is released. You've got a spread of over 10% from the max to the min. So big swings caused by inflation prints. Fast forward to 2023 and now early 2024, which we haven't necessarily had a print yet, but we've had only one. The, the range has narrowed. So the market has basically said, we don't care anymore. It doesn't, it's not going to induce volatility. You can tell us whatever you want about CPI. We've decided it doesn't matter as much. Jobs, which is the magenta bar, still matter, still can induce volatility. So that's something that we do have to pay attention to. But this answered one of my questions of, you know, we can talk about cuts. We can talk about inflation. It turns out the market is going to do whatever it wants to until and unless it gets really surprised by something else. So later in the column, and this ended up being sort of the takeaway of it, there's another section called Turn the Lights Back On. I'll let mm -hmm. people know what that was from. Another reemergence from the shadows. Later on, I talk about the fact that it still matters what the Fed does. The Fed can still induce volatility. But the real high-risk event here is that let's say there's a resurgence in inflation when people have stopped caring about the print, right? That makes them complacent. Let's say there's a resurgence in inflation, and let's say that the Fed has to turn the tightening lights back on, and it surprises everybody. That's where the market gets caught flat-footed. Now, I'm not saying that that's the base case scenario, but this is a period now where I'm starting to feel like we're complacent about macro data. We're starting to almost get complacent about what the Fed is saying. And I think that both of those things still matter a lot more than the market's giving them credit for. No, I think it's spot on. And it speaks to just money flows. And 
Again, there is a certain amount of money that flows into the market, regardless of any of the things that we talk about on a daily basis. News flow, macro data, none of it matters. You know, as long as the money flows there, there's gonna there's gonna be this sort of rise in these underlying equities, especially the ones that are in so many different funds and ETFs. And I think that's exactly what's going on. So in the world of passive investing, as we've said for years now, I mean, devoid of some disaster. You know, the markets just sort of levitate. And, you know, I have I struggle with that clearly because I do think at some point fundamentals need to matter. But right now, to your point, and this illustrates it, they clearly do not. Yeah. And I guess what Q4 earnings season taught us, and, and most of it is pretty much in the rearview mirror, is that, again, the market, to your point, Guy, in passive investing, you know, investors are okay with the fact that the concentration at the top of the S&P and the NDX, they're also doing all the heavy lifting on the earnings front, right? And so all the stuff under the hood that we try to point out, like whether it be small caps and the sensitivity to rates and credit and all this sort of stuff, I mean, it really has not mattered for the S&P or for the NASDAQ mm-hmm. at the moment. And so to your point about this this data, it's great to see, Liz, because at some point, you, you know, it will matter, right? And mm-hmm. so the one thing that no one kind of has on their bingo card, and you've spent a lot of time talking about this, it's not like, you know, stock markets do great after the rate hiking cycle, and then you go into that pause period. It's when they start to cut. But what happens to Guy's point that he's made, I, I think, a dozen times over the last few months or so, if things were to reaccelerate, um, because clearly from, I mean, the, the trajectory of the deceleration of inflation has slowed dramatically, right? And so if there is, and we talked about this on Monday, if there was some sort of geopolitical event, and there are a couple brewing right now that were to cause further disruption to supply chains and, you know, whatever the hell it is. And we do see inflation tick back higher. And then we see rate cuts priced out of the market right now, possibly pulling forward that recession that never happened. Then you have a situation where equities are obviously very concentrated. They're um, really priced to perfection, right? On a valuation standpoint. And then when you say this all the time, guy, if passive goes to active, that's how you have a bear market. And I'm not trying to scare anybody out of it. There was plenty of things that happened, stocks to the upside. And we're going to hit another group today that, that seems to be blowing out that basically say, hey, maybe we're okay. Maybe this is 1996 guy. Maybe we are on the precipice of multi-years. We're going to go up 30 plus percent. I don't know. I mean, it would shock me and I'll be out of business if that's the case. Um, so, you know, like hopefully you guys keep <laughs> keep these Betamax we'll remember copies you. of this. But guy, what, what did you make of today? And I just want to throw... Um, I want to throw a uh, sector that you've actually been really, really constructive on, okay? And it's cybersecurity names. Like literally for years, I've been sitting next to you when Palo Alto has been reporting, when Zscaler has been reporting, and when they've dipped, you've been a buyer. You like the secular shift. You've kind of been cognizant of the valuation, right? But like sometimes there are groups that just kind of buck those trends. This has been one for you. Talk to me about that because look at some of the performance today. Look at the year to date. It's pretty eye popping for most of them. And then look at the 12 months. Yeah, throw up a Palo Alto chart and you'll see. I mean, you know, this has been a secular shift. And we started talking about these on we started talking about these stocks long before there was a risk reversal media. I mean, you go back to sort of the archives of Fast Money and we were mentioning that, you know, there is going to be the secular shift into cybersecurity, given the importance, given what's going on. And that's played out now, of course. Somewhat the problem is, and you can look at a Palo Alto chart, some of these downdrafts have been really difficult to stomach without question. I mean, you can look in the chart and see. I mean, you're talking about 25, 30, 40 percent 
peak to trough declines. But, you know, each time they've sort of come raging back. This looks sort of like what the Eli Lilly chart looks like in a lot of ways. I mean, lower left, upper right moves to the downside along the way, but a secular story that continues to grow. Now, valuation, you can't make a case for any of these names on valuation. Quite frankly, Palo Alto maybe is the only one you can make a reasonable case, like a Z-scale, for example. It's gotten itself expensive again. However, these are the clear winners in the space. And I'll say it again for the hundredth time. I mean, on any dips in these names, you have to sort of close your eyes and, and re-enter the long side of these trades. Yeah. So Liz, when you think of a sector, I'm not going to ask you to pine on individual names here, but like a Palo Alto to Guy's point, you know, expected, let's say high teens earnings and sales growth trading at 65 times earnings, 14 times sales this year, um, you know, as an individual name. And that's one of the cheaper ones. You know, when you're in the midst and we're seeing this with AI, but like Mm -hmm. these stocks were good predecessors, I think, to some of the excitement in and around AI, because I think anybody could look at these companies, look at their products, look at their customers, look at the real time threats, look at the the TAMs and everything and say, these these are these guys have a great runway. You know what I mean? This is going to be double-digit growth, earnings and sales for a very long time. Um, but it's hard to get your arms around valuations. Do you sometimes just have to kind of hold your nose and, and just have exposure to, to a group like this? So, okay, a couple things. First of all, my Twitter account getting hacked is further proof that we need <laughs> cybersecurity stocks, obviously. When you're talking about a secular theme, and we've talked about this with AI, I know I've tried to make this point a number of times. I don't think that that AI is a, a nothing, right? I think it's going to be transformational mm-hmm. for many industries. It's just that the internet was too. And it took us 10 to 15 years to figure out how and where the profit was and what all the use cases were. So AI is probably not going to have that answer by the end of this year. You have to give it time. Cybersecurity is very similar. And just even to make this more personal, I at, at some point in 2022, probably early 2022, I talked about a cybersecurity ETF. I used it as my final trade, I believe, ah. at time or something like that. And it was one of those things that I believed as a thematic trade was going to be needed for years to come. I also held it in my personal portfolio. There were a couple drawdowns since then that were really, really painful. And as an investor, I had to stick to my own sell discipline. I did start trimming it in some of those drawdowns because number one, I didn't want to look at the number anymore every time I opened my account. And number two, I had to stay honest and say, you know what? This didn't work out the way that I thought it would. But the reality is that when you enter a name, whether it's an ETF, a theme that you're going to buy in a diversified way, which is how I would suggest doing something like this. Mm -hmm. If you're going to enter it, make a decision upon entry how long you want that, how long you're going to wait for that to play out, Mm -hmm. right? Because the theme didn't change in my mind, but the ability to stomach the pain in the meantime, in the short term was tough. And I probably should have just closed my eyes and said, the thesis hasn't changed. The valuations have changed in the short term, but the thesis hasn't changed. But Guy, and we talk about this a lot. I I think it's it's easier to have a long-term view and, and, and kind of employ the sort of risk management that you're talking about, risk relative to reward in an ETF, in a group like this. You don't have that idiosyncratic risk because I guarantee you, we just threw up a list of four or five of those. One of those stocks has the potential to blow up get Mm -hmm. cut in half while let's say the three or four of them continue Mm -hmm. to make new highs. Like, you know, stock selection, picking winners like that can be really hard. And I don't, I just don't get, and guy, help me out on this thing. I don't get, there are some people out there 
with more experience in markets than me who just hate ETFs. Like, like, do you, do you understand, do you get that a little bit? Because to me, I think about them, I, I use them, not just the actual ETFs to get exposure. I love to trade options in and around them. I just think that like, if you are looking to express views without having to be so right on one specific security, mm-hmm. like to me, it just makes perfect sense. I mean, some are constructed better than others. We talk about the concentration in others. Danny Moses says all the time, know what you own so take a look under the hood but like like some of these i think line up really well for broad exposure to big sector shifts a hundred percent i mean but you know it goes back listen it's the same thing with a lot of people are still adamant about the designated hitter and they were beside themselves when the national league finally came around and added the dh but you know it just makes sense it's the it's the growth it's the iteration i mean etfs make so much sense on a number of different levels and if you really want to get in the weeds, and this is not for today's show, but you know, you can look at an ETF you own and say, okay, within that basket of stocks, there's one that I really don't like, and you can play that vis-a-vis option. So there's so many different cool things you yeah. can do with ETFs. To just say out of hand they're worthless or I'm not in, you know, I don't like them. It, it really doesn't make any sense because, in large part, they've done so much of the work for you. Yeah. And here, here's a good example. So let's pull up the SMH. This is one that we talk about a lot. We trade it a bunch. You know, NVIDIA a year ago was like, I think, a mid single digits percentage of the uh, of this uh, basket, uh, this ETF. OK, so right now it's sitting at 24 percent okay, of the SMH. So make no mistake about it. That is driving the train at this mm. point. Okay. Like so like we get it. OK, but if you're saying to yourself, I love the NVIDIA story. I can't buy it here. You know what I mean? It was trading $200 and now it's trading, you know, a year ago and now it's trading near 700, but I like what Taiwan semi, let's throw up Taiwan semi for a second here. They just had some January sales out. The stock's making a new 52 week high today. So that stock is nine and a half percent. Broadcom had great earnings a couple of weeks ago. You know, that's a 6% thing also at, you know, near 52 week highs. AMD, I'm a bit more skeptical, but they finally have a chip that's going to compete with the high-end, uh, you know, graphics chips over at NVIDIA. Okay, fine, that's only six percent, right? Like, so you're, you're you're looking at this right here. I mean, I think this is a much safer way to get exposure to the semis than having to pick any list, any any one of those names, especially if you agree that all of these companies are going to be moving into graphics chips to support, you know, like large language model training that's going to the data centers and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I get it. The story is going to change though in the next six months, all the excitement in around some of those specific names mm-hmm. is going to get less exciting. It's going to broaden itself out. How do you get like, I guess, risk managed exposure to a group that might be expensive in a euphoric period, um, y- you want broader exposure, in my well, opinion. I mean, in, in industries like this, technology, semiconductors, anything related to AI, you name it, innovation is the way you make money. Obsolescence is your biggest risk, right? In an ETF, you inherently have what's called survivorship bias. Yeah. So rather than having to choose which company you think is going to be the winner and taking the risk that they end up actually being the biggest loser, you buy an ETF, you benefit from survivorship bias because guess what? If one of those companies does fail, guess where it doesn't exist anymore in that ETF, right? It naturally gets taken out. And the ones that did survive and that did become the winners do exist in that ETF. So if you can get sure enough about a theme, about a secular move in markets and in the way that things are going, you buy the theme. You don't try to guess, in my opinion, you don't try to guess which company is going to play that theme the best because it takes so 
long. And the example I always use is AOL. And you think about the internet, right? And it's like, we didn't know in 1999 that the profit was to be made in internet stocks, in advertising, in search engine optimization, in email, right? We didn't know any of that. And a lot of companies were born out of us discovering that. We didn't know e-commerce was going to be such a big thing. So there are going to be new companies that don't even exist right now that will end up being big winners. And guess where they will exist? In ETFs. Yeah. So, you know, Guy still accesses the internet through his AOL yeah. account. Well, so yeah, yeah, you guys want to get in touch with guy.adami at AOL.com. Well, no, um, I don't know why that's even remotely funny. I, 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 <laughs> I, think, I think there's probably a pile of like a gazillion emails there that he's yet to figure out how to he get in there. And he still, he still puts that disk into his computer to try to load that's up. Called a, the, that's yeah. called a floppy disk. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Which is right. not floppy. Last actually. thing. Oddly enough. By the way. Quickly, you know, yeah. what you just described, by the way, is the Premier League. I know right now our friend um, is watching from the United Kingdom, as you know. Wilfred, Wilfred uh, Frost. Exactly, Wilfred Frost. But the shitty teams get bounced out of the Premier League. So to Liz's point, it's the same thing. In each, if you're a shitty company, you're going to get bounced and the next group are going to come in. So they get the relegated. Premier League was on to something you, way back uh, when. Is there a league? Is there a pro league here in the U.S., guy? that mm-hmm. you would be all in favor. And I listen, I think I know I'm, I'm leading the witness here where you would be in favor of relegation. And, and I think you have major, one major league line. baseball, major yeah, league why? baseball. Yeah. No, because you know what? A hundred percent, because there's so many teams of these bottom feeders. It's sort of just are getting themselves or sort of patting their wallets on the backs of teams that actually spend money and they're yeah. not doing anything for their fan base that they should be relegated to some bullshit league or thrown out entirely. So if you think you're just going to coast by on the coattails of the Bronx Bombers or Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, or let's even say the Boston Red Sox, you got another thing coming, pal. You're going to get your ass tossed. Now, of course, that's not the Brewers of Milwaukee because they do put a extraordinarily talented squad on the field each and every year. I'm talking more like people like the Mets who have a checkbook and whatever reason are reticent to spend it with uncle Stevie Cohen, who's probably watching right now. Probably. The Mets should be banished. All right. Fair or enough. they should move. They should move. And if any Met fans out there, tough shit back to you. Okay. All right. Listen, let's do one other thing. Tee up your questions. Little... Tee up your I got questions. the questions. I got I know. All, right. all right. Hold on then. But I, there's one last thing we want to do here, guy. Throw that Axios I'll... slide up. Cause this is what we've been talking about. Oh, on the consumer front. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is kind of interesting. So you've been highlighting um, delinquencies um, and here they are. Here's a chart of it by loan type. So we have auto loans, credit cards. They're starting to pick up. This is at a time where, you know, the rates on those two things are um, extraordinary. You know, we had um, Chris Bitterly guy from Citibank um, on Fast Money, I think on Tuesday night. And she made a really interesting point. I don't know if you caught I know you caught it because you pay attention. Why? Cheapest thing you can do. Yeah. And she said something that in America, if you, you know, live in a home and you, you know, I, I, what's the number? Is it 85% or so of, of homeowners with mortgages have like rates, you know, mortgage rates below, yeah. let's call it 4% or something like that. And if you have low auto loans and you don't have high recurring, you know, like debt levels, it, it actually, and you, you have a job and there's been wage inflation and then you've had, you know, food inflation and some of the service stuff come down, you feel pretty good. Right. But it's, it's the folks that are not, in that category that feel pretty bad. So speak to this a little bit because you've been highlighting this for the last couple of months. That's what's, by the way, those refis and, and the ability to sort of refi a couple, three years or so, whatever the hell it was at those rates, anywhere between three and a half percent and lower, 
was obviously a godsend for the United States consumer without question. It's also created, and Elizabeth talks about this, I don't want to say housing problem, but the sort of this housing conundrum, because there's no inventory out there, because people in these homes with the low mortgage rates, they're not incentivized to leave. So that's what's going on there. Of course, the flip side of that coin is U.S. consumer debt now, I think, is north of $17.5 trillion in aggregate. Credit card debt now $1.1 trillion. And the average rate on a credit card is now 21.47%. And you're starting to see it manifest in these delinquency rates. And again, you know, I'm, I'm just pointing this out just to point it out. If you think this is insignificant, that's fine. I think it's the beginning of something. And, you know, you talk about the health of the consumer. As long as the market does well, as long as people have jobs, people will spend money. The real question is, should they be? And vis-a-vis these graphs and this change, I would submit maybe we're in the maybe we're on the precipice of something, Dan. Yeah, Liz, thoughts here, because I know it's something that you kind of track also. And this is the sort of thing that could change uh, investor sentiment towards consumer-related sectors very quickly if we were to see this kind of spike higher. Yeah, well, and, and here's one thing I would say. A lot of times when we talk about stats like this, some, it, it can suggest that we're saying that consumers in general are making bad financial decisions and they're putting themselves at risk and, and they're just choosing to do that. There's actually a lot of scenarios because of what came out of the pandemic and because of these mortgage rates being so low in a frozen housing market that people have been forced into bad mm-hmm. financial decisions by no choice of their own, really. So for example, let's say you wanted to travel after the pandemic. You didn't want to fly because you had health conditions that didn't allow you to fly. You needed a car in order to do so. That's why used car prices went up so much. You still wanted to buy a car so that you could take your family on a vacation. You had no choice anymore but to buy one that was inflated by 20% because that's all that was available to you. You probably even had to travel two states over to get that 20% inflated car. And you had to do it while rates were rising. So you got a bad rate on your auto loan as well, which is why we're starting to see delinquencies in auto loans. On the other side of that, think about how many millennials and Gen Zers there are trying to engage in what's called household formation, right? They're getting married. They want to start a family. They're forced to buy a house because that's what they want. I shouldn't say they're forced. They're choosing to buy a house because that's what they want. That's the phase that they're in in life. There aren't a lot of existing homes available because as we talked about, nobody wants to leave and take out a new mortgage at such a high rate. So they are forced to pay really high prices, which are not really accurately reflecting where the housing market is, but they're forced to pay high prices at high mortgage rates because that's just the stage of life that they're in. So they're setting up to be in a tough situation two or three years down the road. So that that alone puts the consumer in a tough spot. And then you see things like this where you've got auto loans, I guess, technically are secured, but I'd put them in a category of risky debt. Credit cards are unsecured. You've heard stories about people taking up personal loans in order to pay off mm-hmm. credit card debt, right? And all of that eventually will come out to, you know, we'll see a top in whatever these delinquency rates are. I just don't know where that top is. Yeah. And, and tune in to the Friday drop of uh, on the tape because we're going to talk about um, an article that was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday or maybe this morning, why Americans are so down on a strong economy. And I think this is just a really kind of interesting, it kind of speaks to this conversation that we just had, but it might actually if we kind of dissect it properly and Daniel will be with us, um, it might kind of offer up some ways 
to kind of express different views in the markets that that could be um, unique to 2024, especially given um, all the uncertainty. All right, guys, last thing, we got to hit this before we get to the question. Um, Alibaba down 5% today. Um, it had a big run. Um, this is a name that you and I both thought could have a nice little bounce over the last month. It's had that. Um, disappointing results here. Didn't get really all the way to the top end of that downtrend that's been in place over the last six months or so. So it still feels a bit range bound. Uh, we've been talking about the FXI. We talked about it yesterday, the ETF that tracks uh, large cap um, Chinese um, equities. We know that you know some of these tech stocks are big components of that Alibaba, obviously being one of them. Let's pull up the FXI here um, for a second. And you and I have been saying, you know where to put the stop. If you want to be contrarian here, um, we're going to stick with that stop. That's why we draw that green line there. We talked about ways to kind of express a contrarian view to finding a risk possibly with options or so thoughts on the results quickly the stocks reaction and FXR very surprised reaction. very surprised i mean i would have thought north of 80 on the back of earnings they announced a buy they announced a 25 billion dollar stock buyback i think obviously the run you know maybe it was just people saying you know buy the rumor sell the news type of thing i'm not ready to sort of give up on the alibaba trade although you know common sense suggests over the last four years, every rally has been sold. In terms of uh, the FXI, I think you hit the nail on the head. 21-ish is sort of your line in the sand. That was obviously the low we made. I think October of 22 is basically the low we made in 2008. Faded down there recently and bounced. You know, I think you can stay with it. The fundamentals suggest otherwise. I get it. Both of these are purely a technical trade, Dan. Yeah. All right. Like. Let's do it, guy. Let's light her up. All right. I got, got questions. questions. Here we go. Let's get, get around. Get ready, sister. EY's got a she's got a dip at some point. Here's a good one from Steve B. Would Dan sell puts on Snap here? And you actually talked about Ooh. Snap last night on the show. Ooh. And this is something we typically don't tell people to do, obviously, the inherent risks. But if the vol's enough, and if I guess if you are happy owning the stock at a certain level, maybe this isn't this not an insane idea. All right. I love it. Actually, we're going to tease this a little bit. So the stock is down 35%. And I said, as my final call um, on Fast Money last night, and I've literally done this almost every quarter for the last, uh, you know, look, look at those gaps. You can see where they are. The stock runs up into earnings, gaps lower, and then it fills in the gap. It literally does it almost every quarter. Now, here's the deal. We're right at that 200-day moving average, a 35% drop on one day, and it's not done. Pull up the, the two-day chart of this thing, Okay. You know, where's the valuation support? This is a company that on a gap basis is going to lose a billion dollars in net income, okay? Sales are declining, they're cutting costs aggressively, TikTok's eating their lunch, um, but it's got a $20 billion enterprise value, okay? Elon Musk a year and a half ago took Twitter out at $44 billion, okay? So my point is there is like, there is a value here. I'm going to look to play this thing in the not so distant future on the long side. And to Steve B's point, you know, if I wanted to look out a few months, because no one's going to be able to nail the timing, right? But the idea, if I want to play this into April and have this stock fill in a bit of that gap, I might look with a stock at 11 and a half, or it's actually close to at 11 right now. Maybe I sell the nine put in April, right? And I use the proteins for that. And I can almost like price it up here. If you want me to do that really quickly, sorry, 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 people here, that nine put, nah, it's not great. 20 cents. Why would I sell that? You know what I mean? It's what do you call that guy picking up nickels off a, a train? Yeah, you're, you're getting like right that. in front of that, on that highway man and you're yeah you so then the that. flip side of this if i said okay ten dollars the, the the 10 put in april is 44 cents okay so that's four and a half percent of the stock price if i were to sell that it's down 15 percent where i got put the stock nah, 
you know, it's not great. You know what I mean? Now, the only way I'd find that interesting is if I sold that 10 put, if I was willing to buy it at 10 and I took in 44 cents and I looked up, oh, well, that 13 call is about 45 cents. Mm -hmm. So I bought that. I do what's called a risk reversal. Sell put, buy call, do it for low cost. As the stock moves down towards that short put strike, you are losing money on a mark-to-market basis. As the stock would move higher towards that long call strike, you'd be making money. The stock's above 13 on April expiration, you're long. So I would consider risk reversals if I am really comfortable being put the stock at that short put strike. How's that? Steve, like what you did there. And the opportunity to talk about risk reversal media. Yeah, right. Yeah. See, see what I did there? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, our namesake, as they say, um, yeah. that's that's eponymous. If you want to look up the word, it begins with an E. Elizabeth, you can do that whilst I'm asking the next question. Go go to your Google machine. E-P-O-N, by the way. Uh, JM460. So I'd imagine uh, this is somebody named Joe whose birthday is in April of 1960. Is it normal for the VIX to be and stay this low? Well, there is nothing normal about this market. I'll say this, not understanding anything about sort of the nuts and bolts of the volatility index, but I'm pretty well convinced that the dampening of volatility that we've seen over the last couple of years goes hand in hand with these zero day to expiry options that have seemingly come out of nowhere. I can't explain the reasons why, but I'm pretty, I have a pretty good suspicion that the two go hand in hand. And of course, the problem is, these I, I absolutely believe that there's a day of reckoning coming for these ODTE things that people talk about. Haven't seen it yet. And that's one of those things where people make money 85% of the time. That's what the statistics say. The problem is the 15% of the time that you lose, you're going to absolutely blow yourself up. So my answer to this question, no, it's not normal. I think I have the explanation, Dan. Yeah. I mean, Liz, this is one where it can be really technical, but then in other ways, it could just be one of those things like this is an input you look at, you know, in volatility Mm -hmm. as a measure of kind of risk in the markets here. When you see a sustained period like this, that whatever the reason might be, um, does it get your antennas up a little bit? I mean, it did a while ago and then it stayed low forever. So it just feels like it's, it's not worth looking at until it's worth looking at. And it just hasn't been. And I think Guy is right. It probably does have something to do with the zero days to expiration options. But I think the key to what he said was, I can't explain it. I don't think any of us can explain it. And if ever there's something going on in the market that nobody can really explain, chances are we will eventually be able to explain it and it's not going to be a fun explanation. So I don't know what's going to end up causing it. Generally, when I look at the VIX and it's been this low for this long, it does feel like a rubber band that just keeps getting pulled back further and further and further before it snaps. But also remember, when the VIX spikes, that's all it ends up being usually is a spike. It happens very quickly. It comes back down very quickly. So it's not one of those things that you can see as an indicator slowly moving over time and, and catch a trend line in necessarily. It's just if if crap hits the fan... The VIX is going to spike. Whoa. And then it's the a VIX family show, Liz. Relaxed. Hey, if these guys can pull this out to maybe a five year chart really quickly, because, you know, again, you know, I think Guy's point is that you would think a lot of folks are, are buying these zero days expiration, right? So, you know, just kind of taking intraday shots, not having to put what a lot of dealers are doing is they're selling them, right? Because they know that they're going to expire at the end of the day. And then they feel like, you know, they got a like, they got a good, 
you know, feel on what the market, how it's going to do. And, and we're not seeing a lot of intraday volatility to the point of the charts that you were just showing us, yep. that sort of thing. So that sort of behavior guy is your, I think what you're saying is vol dampening on a daily basis. But if there's ever a reason to sell stocks and just the last point, it's like this thing can bang around near lows for an awful long time. And you trying to buy premium all the time is going to get, it's going to be like feeling like death by a thousand cuts, you know, trying to play um, for that pullback. So I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. And quickly, before we go to our next, I think final question, two times in 2022, and there were two times that we got very bullish was in June of 2022, go back to the VIX chart real quick. That's when VIX spiked to about 34 and a half. And then again, in October, where you saw a very similar move in the VIX, both those times, the VIX was giving you some confidence that, you know, maybe the panic was in and there was an opportunity to buy the market. Now, 2023 was sort of its own animal. But I remember specifically in 2022, the VIX helping to Elizabeth's point is something you don't watch until you do. This is from KK0314. My question is, where should I go in equities that will do well when the sell-off gets bad? So this is what I will say, and I'll try to connect these dots quickly. I think if the sell-off gets bad, it's probably because something broke in technology if something breaks in technology, I think there's going to be a rotation from technology into energy stocks and very specifically. So I think if you're concerned that the broader market is on the precipice of something, I think you're going to, the money is going to find its way into an energy sector that's sort of been left on the side of the road. Uh, EY, I'm not looking for specifics, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think if that happens anytime soon, money stays in money market funds for a while. Mm -hmm. The other thing is if money is going to rotate within the equity market, what I would recommend doing and energy, some of the energy stocks fall into this category, but I'd look at dividend paying stocks because if, again, if crap hits the fan, chances are the Fed's going to start cutting rates faster, or at the very least, the market is going to expect the Fed to cut rates faster, which means that yields come down and dividends start to be more attractive. Dividends, ETFs in particular, usually more skewed towards staples and utilities, which are the classic defensive sectors. Another defensive sector that you can look at, although it's seen a decent run recently, is healthcare, particularly in the large, large cap space, uh, serves as a defensive sector usually, but not quite as traditionally defensive as staples and utilities. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, the healthcare started to act pretty well over the mm -hmm. last couple months. You know what I mean? So that's a group that, you know, and, and normally you'd say, well, if money was going to come out of the U.S., then maybe they could pull up an EEM chart here, maybe a five-year chart. I mean, look at this thing. We know it's heavily China, and we just talked about China and how poorly um, China is doing right now. I mean, this would be the sort of thing if you thought like that 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 the uh, emerging markets were were kind of you know behind us in in the sort of like recovery phase or whatever, like you know you but you want a little exposure here, right? I mean, like that would make some sense, but it really feels like what's going on around the world. Like we spend a lot of time talking about the potential issues with com uh, commercial real estate here in the U.S. and debt and the like, and you know what's going on in China is just a disaster. What's going on in Europe, possibly with commercial real estate, is not going to um, get much better. So it's just kind of interesting to me. Pull a five year this EEM chart because this is one where I don't know, guy, like it's a nice little consolidation there, you know, like uh, might, might, I, might I like have a little. Yeah, look, I mean, that's this is well, you'd hit the nail on the head. If you're if you think China's going to go to the upside, this is, you know, this is a way to sort of, I guess, mitigate some of the concerns around China. But China's going to drive this boat without question. So I'm with you on that one. And maybe you have seen, you know, in a year and over a year now consolidation in this thing. We'll see.
Last question is from Scott A. Uh, this is right up EY's alley. Do you think the longer it takes the Fed to cut, the bigger the first cut will be? As Rod Stewart said so famously, I know EY knows this, the first cut is, in fact, the deepest. Do you think that's going to be true for Jerome Powell at all? I thought it was Cheryl Crow who said that. No, okay. You see that? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I can't even because, yes, I'm sure she covered the song. I have no doubt that she did. Good for her. I'm sure uh-huh. she's lovely. But she did not make that song the hit that it's known to be. Okay. Anyway, please. Generational. Rod Stewart, by the way, as Dan knows, was a member of the great band Faces, along with Ron Wood and Kenny Jones, the drummer. Kenny Jones then came in to be the drummer for The Who after the untimely demise of one Keith Moon. And I said the word demise the same way Quint said it in the movie Jaws. Back to you, EY. So the question about the longer it takes them to cut, the bigger the first cut will be. Um, I actually, I've been talking about this a lot, particularly with my analysts and just kind of philosophizing about it for the last couple of days. I still think the first cut is 25 basis points because the Fed doesn't like to surprise people or shock them coming out of the gates. They like to kind of warm us up to the idea, right? So even if they wait until June to do the first cut, I still think it's 25. If something happens between now and then, I might change my tune. But I do think that the longer the Fed waits to cut, the bigger that some subsequent cut may be. And I made this point, I believe on Monday, the Fed was late. They admitted that they were late in 2021. They waited until March of 2022 to start hiking rates and now have admitted that eh, maybe we could have started a little bit sooner, right? Which then forced them to have to hike rates in a big way. So we started with 25 but then it was 50, then it was 475s in a row, then it was another 50. So we went up fast and they had to accelerate the speed because they were late. If they're late on cutting, I think they'll have to do the exact same thing on the other side. They'll have to accelerate the speed in cutting because they'll realize that the data is getting ahead of them and they were late to start cutting. Now, I'm not saying that I can say they'll be wrong. It's difficult to time that, obviously, but I do think that the further these get pushed into the future, the higher the chance of us seeing at least one 50 basis point cut this year. I believe it was Rocky too when Rocky, you know, felt all, you know, he's, I think he was pretty confident in himself. Maybe it was Rocky three and he was working out in this swank hotel and Burgess Meredith wasn't particularly happy with the workout. And as he was walking out Burgess Meredith, he heard some piano player in the gym that Rocky was working out and was just problematic in and of itself playing the Rocky theme, and in only Burgess Meredith's fashion said, change your tune, which Elizabeth just said as well. So we're going to change our tune here because we're out of time, Dan Nathan, but I want to thank EY from SoFi. I want to thank you, SoFi and FactSet, and of course the audience and all the people back at our headquarters doing yeoman's work. Uh, We will be back tomorrow, which will be Thursday, and I think... Not only will the great Carter Braxton Worth will be joining us, but Dan, if it's Thursday, it's what? Butters. Bitch. See you tomorrow. Bye.